But Lord, Moses protested, I've never been a man of ready speech, never in my life, not even now that you have spoken to me. I am slow and hesitant. We bow before you, Heavenly Father, asking that your word would be our rule, your Holy Spirit our teacher, and your greater glory our supreme concern, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, Professor Radner's master, masterful reflection on the name of God last week brought our series on the book of Exodus to a magnificent crescendo. The God of creation, we were reminded, is a particular God with a selective and exclusive interest in the oddest things of the world. Not just Jews, but you and me too. We have a name because God has a name, Ephraim exclaimed. And his name is the name that has spoken and thus creates, such that I am becomes you are. Well, I, for one, left chapel inspired by this, with a renewed sense of awe that in his grand universal design, nothing is insignificant to God. And I felt humble gratitude that he has included me in his purposes, has given me a name that is hidden in the name that is above every name. But it is remarkable how such a sense of privilege can also be experienced as a burden. God has indeed given me a name, but I must say that yesterday I found myself wishing that he hadn't, give me, hadn't given me either a name or an address, as I received a couple of caustic and confrontational letters from individuals who wanted to take issue with the presentation I had given. The hard truth is that when we take, when we respond to God, when we take upon ourselves the name that God has given us, we also take on a measure of responsibility. When we received our identity in Christ through baptism, we also received a duty to resist the world, the flesh, and the devil. When we enlisted as followers of Jesus Christ, we were given a commission to go and make disciples. These are great and noble purposes, to be sure, but they can fill us with anxiety and dread, the very antithesis of the gratitude grace is meant to arouse. Indeed, when we come to terms with the magnitude of what is being asked of us, we may well resonate with Moses when having received his commission pleaded, Lord, send anyone else you like. One of the things that makes Moses easy to relate to is the fact that he is a reluctant figure. It is worth commenting that although the Bible exalts Moses as Israel's prophetic hero who dispenses the divine law, its portrayal of his leadership does not gloss over his weaknesses. One Old Testament scholar writes, one would expect the traditions about a founder of a nation to be embossed with legend and hyperbole. Yet what surprises about Moses 
is his all-too-human flesh-and-blood character. In fact, we've encountered his all-too-human reluctance before this. To God's bidding in chapter 3, Come, I shall send you to Pharaoh, and you are to bring my people Israel out of Egypt. Moses replies, But who am I that I should approach Pharaoh and that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Now it's hard to know what was at the root of Moses' qualms, just as we are not always sure about what gives rise to our own diffidence and timidity. Was he looking for an easy way out? Did the prospect of having to face the ruler of one of the ancient world's most powerful nations fill him with dread? Had he witnessed enough trauma in his life and therefore want to be left alone to tend his father-in-law's flock? His various responses to God indicate that he felt inadequate to the task, lacking both stature among the Israelites and the eloquence required to address a king. He claims that the Israelites simply wouldn't believe him and that his speech is muddled and in inarticulate, owing in part to an impediment, a heavy tongue, as the text says. It's not plain if this meant he struggled with the languages of the Hebrews or the Egyptian court or if he simply had trouble talking. In believing that Moses had a speech defect, the church fathers and rabbinic scholars were generally of a mind to see Moses' reluctance as an expression of his humility. He felt that he was incapable and therefore unworthy of speaking the words of God. And it is easy to read Moses' lack of self-confidence as characteristic of other biblical figures who receive a prophetic calling. When summoned by God to speak, for instance, Jeremiah replies, Ah, Lord God, I am not skilled in speaking. I am too young. But whether Moses was making excuses or registering a legitimate concern, it is God's response that reframes the situation. For this story is not in the end about Moses and his motives and abilities. It is rather about God's redemptive purposes in the world. Who is it that gives man speech, demands God? Who makes him deaf or dumb? Who makes him keen-sighted or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? The principle here is that the theater of God's power is human weakness and shortcoming. We can see how this principle works quite naturally. I wonder if you know that Winston Churchill had a serious speech impediment. At the age of 23, he sought medical help because he was not able to pronounce the letter S properly. It's a problem that appears to have been genetic since his father had a similar difficulty. He tried to remedy the defect by practicing tongue twisters, such as the Spanish ships I cannot see for they are not in sight. In the end, he was not able to rid his speech of the mispronunciation, but by crafting his address carefully to avoid words that began or ended in an S, and through varying his cadence 
and employing hesitation, he was able to use his handicap to great effect. He was finally able to say, my impediment is no hindrance. Well, if such an effect is achievable by dint of human effort, how much more noteworthy is it if it comes by the hand of God? Indeed, this principle that God chooses the feeble and powerless in order to demonstrate his strength and sufficiency is at the very heart of the gospel. Jesus is often in the company of the blind, the deaf, the sick, the leprous, and the demon-possessed. While in his own passion, he himself takes on the role of the suffering servant. St. Paul's theology of the cross is thus fixed on the notion that God's power is made perfect in weakness. He writes, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not, to reduce to nothing things that are. And such was God's intention with the reluctant and stammering Moses. Through this ill-suited and recalcitrant individual, God led his chosen people out of bondage into the promised land, and the program of salvation went forward. It wasn't without its challenges, of course. Moses still pleaded to be excused. And for the first time in the Bible, it is said that the Lord became angry. But God accommodated Moses' objections, appointing his brother, brother Aaron as the spokesman, and Moses had nowhere else to turn. So, the text says, Moses took his wife and children, mounted them on a donkey, and set out for Egypt. And what happens next is a matter for another Thursday morning. But this morning, I wonder whether these words fall on any Moses-like ears. Many of us are here at a time of personal discernment and discovery. And it is very easy for some of us to feel overwhelmed by our inadequacies. We may not possess the intellectual gifts to be at the top of the class, or we may be aware of deficits in our people's skills. Clergy, after all, generally are known to be strong introverts. It may be that the prospect of leading others is daunting, especially at a time when the church is undergoing tumultuous change and experiencing rancor and conflict. And I can imagine that our insecurities and lack of confidence can be obstacles in our desire to hear God's call and to respond in obedience. If this describes your situation, God may wish to say to you, who is it that gives man his speech? Who makes him dumb or deaf? Who makes him keen-sighted or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Go now. I shall help you to speak and show you what to say. My brothers and sisters, the story we are a part of is not about us. It is about God. And we must be content to let God use us in our weakness in order to display his strength.
On the other hand, there may be others here who think that we have our calling cased. Confident in our skills and abilities, we are inclined to rely on our own strength and charisma. And we may succeed, we may find success as the world understands the term. But we also need to hear God ask, who is it that gives man speech? Only for us, the answer comes not as an encouragement, but as a warning. For we need to be reminded that the story is not about us either. The great Old Testament scholar Gerhard von Rott wrote, Neither previous faith nor any other personal endowment have the slightest part to play in preparing one who was called to stand before Yahweh for his vocation. Our God-given capacities are wonderful things, and they find their proper place when bent to the purposes of God. But it is God's way to exploit weakness. And if there is any legacy, any monument fit for the kingdom, it will come as we, with Moses in the eyes of the writer to the Hebrews, consider abuse suffered for the Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Amen.